there are a whole host of things in this world that are considered to be powerful. And within each of those categories, there are numerous things that are considered most powerful. For instance, the Atlas missile used uh, by our government had enough power to break through our atmosphere and send the first four Americans into outer space. The power of the hydrogen or the thermonuclear bomb is almost unimaginable. It was first developed in the 1950s and is perhaps a thousand times more powerful than the uranium or the plutonium-based fission bomb. In fact, there are only five permanent uh, United Nations Security Council members who are known to even possess such a bomb. The hydrogen bomb operates when its core heats to 50 million degrees, and then there is such an explosion that it can wipe out a small nation. What about the most powerful gun in the world? The most powerful gun in the world is the 32 megajoule electromagnetic laboratory rail gun. It's owned by the United States Navy. It is so powerful, in fact, it has a range of 200 miles. It can be fired from midtown Manhattan and it can hit a target over in Boston, Massachusetts. Powerful. What about the most powerful uh, animal in the world. I guess you could put this under the <clears throat> heading of an animal. It's the rhinoceros beetle. The rhinoceros beetle can grow to a length of six and three quarters inches and it can lift 850 times its body weight. Now, if that were a person weighing 150 pounds, they could bench press 127,500 pounds or 36 Toyota Camrys. Botulinum toxin. Now we know botulinum toxin as Botox, but it is the most powerful poison in the world. Used properly, it can fight wrinkles and scars, but one gram of this toxin can kill one million people. It's powerful. Now those things are powerful. But there's something else that's powerful in the world. What about the sin that was introduced into the world by Satan? Way back at the beginning to the first couple, it caused problems then, and it continues to cause problems today. It can be very powerful, can it? It can undo the principles of noble men and women. It can make idealists forget the lofty goals by which they have uh, directed their lives. It has caused leaders throughout the world to mistreat their fellow countrymen all so they could gain notoriety, power, and riches. It can give or cause the most faithful to give up their hold on eternal life just to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin is powerful. On at least two occasions... Paul told us what the remedy was to that in, in, a, in a way that described the power of the thing that can counteract sin. The most powerful thing in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on at least two occasions, Paul talked about it going into all the world. He talked about it being the most powerful message that this world has ever gained. And he talked on numerous occasions about it bringing life to those who are dead. We learn 
Some view this gospel message, this powerful thing, as foolishness. To others it is a stumbling block. And, and to those who consider it unimportant, they may even view it as a fairy tale or some kind of an old wives' tale, a myth, if you will. But to those of us who believe, we understand it to be the power of God unto salvation. It is the most powerful thing on earth. But why is it the most powerful thing on earth? We might study a section of the Bible, look at a, a passage and understand exactly what Paul is saying, but if all we're doing is repeating the facts that we read, it's not helping us that much. We need to be able to make some kind of an application, understand it in its context then and understand it in its context now. Not that the context changes, the circumstances change from one dispensation to the other. But why is it that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful thing in the world. We're going to understand a few things that make it the most powerful thing in the world, but we need to do something with that information. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful thing because of what it produces. That's our first point. And it produces faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the most powerful. And that's what I've entitled this sermon. It is the most powerful because it produces faith. Since the Word produces faith, there is no other source by which we can go to learn what God wants us to do. There's no other source that we can go to to learn what we must do to be saved. Now, throughout the world, there is this misconception that just because we're decent people, morally upstanding, we do not steal, cheat, or lie, that we will, in fact, get to heaven. Nothing could be further from the truth. And where do we learn that? From the source of our faith. We read about Cornelius in Acts chapters 10 and 11. There wasn't a better man than Cornelius, but he was lost. He had to do certain things in order to gain his salvation. So we have to go to this source. The writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. And that's why Paul, or excuse me, that's why Peter could declare, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4, 12. And he's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of our faith. Christ declared John 12, 48 through 50 about His Word, about those who reject His Word, that they would not be saved. He says those words that He has spoken, they'll judge them in the last day. That's the source. We need to understand about the source of our faith and, in, and to ensure the continuation of that message, that powerful message. Do you remember when Christ, prior to ascending back to the Father, He encouraged and consoled the apostles? He said, John fourteen twenty six. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, Whatsoever I've said to you. And since they were guided by the Holy Spirit into all things, they consistently affirmed. They spoke not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, 
but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2, 13. That's the source. So what do we do with that source? What good does it do us if we understand the source, but it doesn't go beyond the source? We have to understand a little bit about the source. Without doubt, our personal faith is a result of the one faith that has been revealed to us. There's only one faith. Notice what Jude said, Jude 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Paul said this, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, talking about the source. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. See, it's the Word of God. It's the source. It works in us. If we just recognize a source, and that's beyond, and that's all we recognize, it's not helpful to us. We may recognize a source of water if we're stranded in the desert, but until we go drink of that fountain of water, it does us no good. The source alone is not helpful. The Word of God is the gospel system of faith that is provided for us. And through that gospel system of faith, the source, we have a personal faith. And that personal faith leads us to be obedient to the Father of Heaven. It leads us to be obedient to Christ. But we have to do something beyond just understanding the source. There has to be more than just the source. There has to be some kind of an action that causes us to be obedient. The Word of God is powerful because it is the only source by which we can gain salvation. But how do we gain the salvation? It's the source, but it must be searched out. It must be searched out. It's not just simply going to become a part of us because we hold the written Word in our hands. We don't learn God's system of faith through osmosis, do we? We have to study it. We have to dig into it. God's system of faith is, in fact, a taught religion. It's a taught religion. Have you ever heard this? I've heard some people say before, faith is better, is, is better caught than taught. Faith is better caught than taught. That's, that's the idea in the religious world, isn't it? All of a sudden, God just comes upon us in some kind of a, a miraculous direct operation. And now all of a sudden we're faithful. All of a sudden we're no longer totally uh, depraved and, and, and all the other nonsense that goes along with that. Look, that's not true. God's religion has always been taught. We have to learn it. Jesus didn't say that, that we caught God's faith. Notice what He did say, John 6, beginning with verse 44. He said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, exactly how does God draw us to Jesus? He continues saying, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. See, when we look at a passage, we have to look at the whole passage. 
we have to look at the context under consideration. Someone looks at that and they say, yeah, the Father draws us to Christ and it just happens all of a sudden through some kind of an operation of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He said the Father draws us to Christ. How? Through teaching, through being taught. That's what the prophets said when the great prophet Isaiah foretold of the establishment of the church in Isaiah chapter 2. He said those same things. Notice, beginning with verse number 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Now, what are the last days? Joel talked about the last days, the things that would happen in the last days, Joel chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we see the unveiling and the unfolding of those last days. And Peter said, this is that which Joel spoke. Friends, we're in the last days. We're in the last days. The mountain of the Lord's house, the church, was established in the top of the mountain. Jerusalem was was the top of the mountain. Anywhere you went from Jerusalem, you went down. And so we see those things happening. Joel talked about the Holy Spirit coming upon people and talking in tongues. And that's what happened to the apostles. They spoke in tongues. The Holy Spirit gave them that power. We're in the last days. All nations will flow unto it. We read in Acts chapter 2 about men from every nation being in Jerusalem for the Passover. It's the prophecy. It's unfolding. It happened. The prophet goes on and says, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us of His ways. And we will walk in His paths, for out of Zion, Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Saving faith is not some kind of a mystical something that happens to us. It is a taught religion Christianity is and from the gospel system of faith we are able to produce personal faith and it doesn't come upon a person at just some kind of a a random point in life and all of a sudden they're driving down the old uh, red dirt road I remember listening to a song one time and and that's when uh, the individual said he was saved he got out of the car and he and, and he prayed to God that's not what we read about in the Bible It's a taught religion. We learn about Christ. We learn about what He did for us. We learn about the source. We have to search it out. And because of that, we can have faith, personal faith from the system of faith. Paul told those in Thessalonica how they're called. Look, we're called. There's no doubt about it, but we're not called in the denominational sense of being called. A faint whisper in the night, someone talking into our ears and and someone calls us into the ministry or calls us to be faithful. That's not how that happens. Notice what Paul said. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14 He said, We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How did He he call us? How did He choose us? How did He sanctify us? He did it through the gospel, through learning, through the system of faith, and it produced our personal faith. 
Christ's message is powerful. In fact, it is the most powerful. Why? Because of what it produces. It produces faith. But it's also the most powerful because because of that faith, it also produces freedom. That's our second point. When one is granted freedom, from what are they granted freedom? Some kind of a bondage, right? We're, we're freed from some kind of a bondage. That may be a bondage that we choose, or it may be a bondage cast upon us. But Christ's message is powerful because it offers freedom from a bondage because it saves us. That's where the salvation is. It saves us. Now fortunately for us, God has never required that we try to devise some kind of a way into, into His uh, grace, into His justification. He's always provided that for mankind. From the very beginning, He always offered the way in which a person could stand justified in His sight. We begin in the patriarchal periods of time. We read about Adam. We read about uh, Seth. We read about all those others that came through the line. Noah, Shem. And what did they do to to be able to be justified in the sight of God? We're not given every single detail, but at least it included offering sacrifices to God, right? And we had to offer, or they had to offer the proper kinds of sacrifices. Cain and Abel, we remember that account. Abel offered the sacrifice that God asked him to do. Cain did not. God was not pleased with Cain. He was pleased with Abel. And so, for what all it entailed, and and we're not given every detail, it had to have some kind of a sacrifice, animal sacrifice, evidently. We move on into the law of Moses, and we're given more detail about what was required. Various kinds of sacrifices, different kinds of prayers. God's always told us what we needed to do. We come into the Christian age, He tells us, because it's taught, right? It's taught. And we're saved from that. Paul told the Romans, he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. So I don't have to worry about devising a way into heaven. God provides that for us. He gives us the way. He would go on to say, Paul would, Therefore being justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 It's through Christ. Remember, He's the source, right? He's the source. Most in the world dismiss God's written word, His his revelation to us in in the, the Bible as some kind of an outdated old wives' tale. That it doesn't fit today's world. Well, look, it fits today's world. They say it's not relevant in fact it's irrelevant i don't know if you recall but some time ago on one occasion a a former cnn anchor pierce morgan made a statement he commented he said both the bible and the constitution were well-intentioned but they are basically inherently flawed hence they need to amend it i would disagree with that you would too some say that the Bible is a dead letter. It's just a book like any other book. That's not true. That's not what James said. James 1.21, he said, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, 
and receive with meekness the engrafted Word which is able to save your souls. I think Mr. Morgan missed it. I think he misunderstands the nature of the Bible. I think he understands the nature of the Constitution as well. But we're talking about the Bible. Some will accuse it being full of error. But the psalmist declared, Psalm 19, 7, that it is perfect converting the soul. Nothing erroneous about the Bible. It's just as relevant today as when it was first written. It doesn't need to be amended. That's the problem with the world today. People are trying to amend the Bible. Why is it relevant? Why does it remain relevant? Because sin is still the greatest problem that we have in this world and the Bible is the answer. It is the source of freedom. Source of freedom from the bondage of that sin. And we need it. People want to argue about God's plan of salvation. They want to they want to in, inject into it something that they believe is a better plan. We remember uh, all different kinds of accounts throughout the Bible of people trying to amend God's plan. We read Second Kings chapter 5 and we read about Naaman. He didn't like God's plan. He didn't like the idea of dipping in the Jordan River. He had a better plan. Well, that same thing's happening in our world today. People look at God's pattern of salvation and they want to say, well, I don't understand this or I don't understand that. Well, let's go to the source and find out. That's what we need to do, right? Why is God's Word the most powerful? Because it produces faith. It gives us freedom. We see that we can go to the source and we can understand what, it, what we need to do. It's the Bible that tells us we have to have faith in Jesus, Hebrews eleven six. It's the Bible that demands one repents of past sins, Acts three nineteen. We change our lives. We turn toward God. We do the things He's asked us to do. It's the Bible that says that we need to confess that Christ is the Son of God. It brings us unto the point of salvation, Romans ten ten. It's the Bible that tells us that, that we need to go down into the water and be immersed. So our sins can be washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. Isn't that wonderful that God has delivered that message to us? Isn't it wonderful that I don't have to guess what God wants me to do, that we don't have to talk about it and try to determine if God wants us to do this or wants us to do that? He simply told us what to do. That's why it's so powerful, His message. It gives us freedom. It's the Bible that, that makes it clear that if we don't remain faithful, we can't gain heaven, Acts 2.47. We have to remain faithful. Aren't we so fortunate to understand that, that we know that because God's delivered it to us? The Bible is powerful because it offers the freedom from sin. But, you know, but why? Why is it able to offer the freedom from sin? Do you remember how Paul described it? It's the sword of the Spirit. That's where the power comes from. That's why it's able to do those things. As he listed the Christian armor, we read that in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul included the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit used and continues to use the sword of the Spirit. But what good does that do us to understand that? What good does it do us to understand that that's how God communicates with us today? Through the written Word of the Bible? What good does it do me to understand that that's His power of salvation. Paul listed those pieces of armor and he emphasized 
that the Holy Spirit demonstrates His power and is, He is accessed through the inspired message. There's no other way. Isn't that simple? Isn't that wonderful to understand that, that it's just a simple process? We read the Bible, the gospel system of faith within us. Faith is produced and we understand the things that we need to do because God has set that forth for us and then we see in action the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who claim an extra inspirational message from God, they have a, they have a hard time answering some very fair questions. I think if someone comes and, and, and they explain to us that they are some kind of a modern-day prophet, they're some kind of a latter-day uh, inspired writer from God, I think they ought to be able to answer some questions. What can they tell us, in fact? Let's think about it. What can they tell us about God's plan of salvation? What can they tell us about righteous living that we do not learn from the Bible? Now think about it. What were the inspired writers doing when they wrote the messages? They wrote additional things that had not been written before. Right? Who else had written something similar to the revelation John penned? Hadn't happened. Who else had written the history of the church, the Acts of the Apostles? Who else had done that? Hadn't happened. Who else had written those things about how to remain faithful? Now they complement each other, but it's new things. Where else could they go other than the pen of Paul or the voice of Paul or the other writers to learn what God wanted? Where else could they go for that? They couldn't. So we have a modern day prophet and they tell us, and we, we can watch them on TV all day long on Sunday. Modern day prophets, they're, they're gaining revelation from God. What are they telling us that we don't know about from the Bible? Well, now they're telling us different things. But what they're telling us contradicts what the Bible says. God has always warned throughout every dispensation of time, don't tamper with His Word. Why? Because it's powerful. Don't tamper with His Word. Don't diminish from it. Don't add to it. Notice what He said, Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, Moses warned, You shall not add unto the Word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Not only is that true under the times of Moses and those who lived under the law, it's true during the Christian age. John warned, Whosoever transgresses and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son, 2 John 9. If we do not abide in the doctrine, we're abiding in some other doctrine. And therefore we've either added or taken away from Christ. The Word gives us the eternal heaven, the opportunity to be with God. It tells us exactly what we need to know and why would we mess with it. It does not need to be updated by an imperfect people. Christ said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. We need to understand that, right? The word is powerful because it, it gives us what we need to know. It's powerful because we have faith 
It's powerful because it offers freedom, but it's powerful because it will never fail. That's our third and final point. It will never fail because there's no substitute for it. We just talked about the things that Christ said. We need to, we need to abide in it. It'll never pass away. It'll always be there. There's no substitute for that. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't, don't interfere with it. Why? Because there's no substitute for it. When you change it into something else, it's worthless. The Bible gives us the answer to a lot of things if we'll just search it out, if we'll just look for it, if we won't allow the substitutions of this world to get in our way. The Word of God is powerful because it doesn't fail. There's no substitute. And we need to guard against people who would sway us in a different direction. John still warns us today. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits where they are from God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Well, how do we prove a particular doctrine? How do we test the those supposed prophets that come out into the world? How do we test those who stand on our TV or stand in our TV screens and and we watch them, and we watch their programs, and they tell us all sorts of things. How do we test that? Well, we're given an example, Acts 17, verse 11. Talking of those in Berea, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. We prove what someone teaches by comparing it to the canon of the Bible. Isn't that wonderful that it is that simple? Isn't it wonderful that God has provided for us a way in which we can do that? Remember what Paul said. He said, Provide all, uh, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 See, there are a lot of religions in the world that, that have a semblance of biblical teaching. But they're not what God wants us to know. Most, in fact, of the so-called modern-day prophets have plagiarized large sections of the Bible in their supposed revelations. And we have to be careful because the power is in the Word of God, not in the words of people. But it is powerful. The Word of God is the most powerful because it gives us faith. It gives us freedom. And we must never fail to understand that we have to keep a watch over it and to protect it because it will never fail us. With great power, God has made available to us salvation. He's given us His Word. And wouldn't it be a shame if we simply ignored it? What does it matter if we understand all of these great truths? These are the truths that Paul put forth in the Bible. You can read it. We can read it for ourselves. Some of you may remember back in the 1970s when the discovery of the oil reserves on the north slope of Alaska was made. We're still using that oil today in the form of natural gas and different kinds of energy. And at the time it was found, they said, we will be able to use this for the next 100 years and more. And we're still doing it. We're about 40 years from that. But do you know what is amazing about that oil reserve is that it was always there. It was always there. But it was untapped. It was undiscovered. 
it was not used. The Word of God has always been with us. To all who have ever lived, it's come in different forms. During the patriarchal period, it came in oral form. During the time of Moses and the law of the Jews, it was began to be written down. During the Christian age, it was spoken to begin with, and now we have it written in its form. But His Word has always been with us. It simply goes untapped. It simply goes undiscovered. It simply is ignored. And wouldn't it be a shame for the billions of people in the world and who have lived and who will live to enter into eternity unprepared simply because the Word has been ignored. Now a lot of that responsibility is placed on us as Christians. What good does it do us to know the source of salvation if we don't tell other people about it? What good does it do us to know the source of salvation and the the ways in which we're to live righteously if we don't implement those in our own lives? What good does it do us? There has to be action. Throughout man's history, God has expected action. He's expected obedience. And part of that obedience is after I get myself saved, through listening to what God says, I go tell other people about it. That's a requirement. That's not just a good idea. He expects that from us. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't leave here today not in a covenant relationship. Give yourself to Him. If you have done that and you've become unfaithful, come back. He wants you to come back. The angels of heaven will rejoice when you do that and we'll love you for it. If you need to answer this invitation at this time, do that as we stand and as we sing.